Today on Government Matters, good news and bad news for the federal government's biggest problems. The Comptroller General of the United States rolls out the brand new high-risk list. Vaccines on the way for federal employees. Congresswoman Eleanor Holmes Norton on making it easier for feds to get their shots. And the number one story of the week, a billion dollar stimulus for federal government IT. Two GovIT veterans break it down. Government Matters starts right now. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching the weekend edition of Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The brand new high-risk list from the Government Accountability Office shows two new entries and one exit. The GAO rolled out the list at the House Oversight and Reform Committee hearing this week. Gene Dodaro is Comptroller General of the United States and leader of the GAO. Welcome, Gene. Thanks very much for coming on the program. I always go right to who's on, who's off, how many of these improve and how many uh, decline. Am I maybe looking at this the wrong way or am I reading this information the way that you want Congress and the agencies to read it? That's uh, absolutely uh, one of the critical elements, Francis. I think the most important is not only on who's off, who's on, is the reasons for that, but also who's made progress and who's not. Because this year, or you know, we mentioned that uh, 20 of the high-risk areas were uh, unchanged from before, and five regressed. So the message I wanted to convey this year is that we need greater leadership to address the limited progress overall. The area off is the Defense Department's support infrastructure management. That's been on the high-risk list since 1997, so that strikes me as a significant win for DOD. What did they do to get off the high-risk list, Gene? Well, they greatly reduced their office and warehouse space. They eliminated a lot of properties. In fact, they, they were the single largest group in, uh, from a government-wide standpoint that did that. Uh, they've reduced their leasing costs. They've also followed our recommendation to negotiate uh, agreements with local governments to provide services for the basis, which has brought their costs down as well. They've also agreed to implement all the recommendations we had for strengthening the methodology and the rigor uh, if there's an additional base closure round. So I was very pleased with that. We had about a dozen recommendations there. So we think they're well postured, Francis. But as you know from our past discussions, just because you're off the list doesn't mean you're out of sight. So we'll keep track on them. One area in particular is the reliability of their real property information. That uh, is continues to be an area worth watching. But we have real property government-wide on the list, and we also track the Defense Department financial management statements. Of course, property records are part of that effort. So we'll keep an eye on it. There are two new uh, additions to the high-risk list this year, small business administrations, uh, emergency loans, and national efforts to prevent, respond to, and recover from drug misuse. Are there common elements among those, uh, between those two things, Gene, that caused them to get added to the list this year? or are the problems there separate and distinct? Uh, they're separate and distinct, although both have a pandemic-related aspect to them, Francis. I mean, in the uh, emergency loans area, and, and I've been clear with the Congress about this, and I wanna be clear here, 
the emergency loan programs were a vital part of the government's efforts to respond to the pandemic and resulting economic repercussions. So they, they've been a vital part of this and it were very important to get the money to small businesses. And I don't want to detract at all from that important value that they've had. However, it's hundreds of billions of dollars of spending. Uh, we made recommendations last June uh, about having a greater oversight plan. We didn't do it immediately because in March, because I know they were starting to get things out in April and May, but they quickly need to have an oversight mechanism in place, but we're still looking for the detailed plans associated with that. In addition, Francis, it wasn't just GAO. Their financial auditors this year declined to give an opinion on the financial statements of SBA because they lacked doc adequate documentation for loan balances and some of their internal controls. So the agency needs to implement these changes. That you know we can get aid out to people quickly, but we can also have proper stewardship over the transparency and the accountability of that money. And there's been fraud in that area as well, and there are many investigations underway. In the drug misuse area, and we're talking both about misuse of prescription drugs as well as use of illegal drugs, from 2002 to 2019, 800,000 people died in the United States as a result of drug overdoses. The rate of drug overdose deaths has increased. Uh, the pandemic has further complicated that. In fact, the latest preliminary data from CDC from May 19 to May 20, which would start capturing part of the pandemic, is the largest ever reported uh, deaths of drug overdoses at 80,000 on a preliminary basis. Uh, so this is a problem. We need greater federal leadership. The Office of Drug Control Policy needs to assert itself more coordinate not only among the federal government, but with federal, state, local governments, healthcare providers, law enforcement. This is a multifaceted problem that's plagued the United States uh, for the decades. And uh, I feel we needed to elevate it to get greater attention to it in order to hope we, we can make some progress in this because it's very important. It's tragic uh, in terms of the loss of life. It's, uh, you know, debilitating to the economy as well uh, because of a lot of lack of productivity and the lack of people working. And so it has a lot of dimensions to it that uh, are, are rather uh, unfortunate. Gene, there's a lot more I'd like to cover, but unfortunately we're out of time. Thanks very much for joining me to talk about the new high-risk list. Appreciate it. My pleasure, Francis. Have a good day. You can find a link to the GAO's new high-risk list at govmatters.tv slash resources. Up next, a vaccine set aside for federal employees. Straight ahead on Government Matters, Congresswoman Eleanor Holmes Norton on the shots and the time off to get them. You're watching ABC7. Welcome back. The federal government should federalize its response to the coronavirus for federal employees, according to seven members of Congress. 
Those members tell the Centers for Disease Control and the Office of Personnel Management Fed should get their own allocation of vaccines. Congresswoman Eleanor Holmes Norton represents the District of Columbia. She's one of the signers of the letter to the CDC director and the acting OPM director. Madam Congresswoman, thank you very much for joining me today. You visited a pharmacy recently with Vice President Harris to promote getting vaccinated. Why would you like to see federal employees get their own allocation of shots, ma'am? Um, the basic reason was uh, because there's a shortage in our own jurisdictions and the federal government should take care of its own uh, by having its own stock for its own employees. But what the president has come up with, we endorse. Uh, what he has said is that each federal employee should have four hours of administrative leave per dose. Uh, this would have been uh, a good thing, we think, because each jurisdiction has its own allocation. So why not the federal government, its own allocation? But we're satisfied with what the president has uh, come down with, given the shortage all over the country. In the event that the federal government gets its allocation for employees, who do you think makes the most sense? What organization in the federal government makes the most sense to run those allocations, make sure those shots get into the arms of the federal employees in an, in an effective, efficient way? Well, now, and then again, we get down to the local level. I guess it would be the OPM, but, but they're not organized on, on, on the local level, so they'd have to deal with the local level after all. That's why I think giving administrative leave may be the base, best uh, solution. What is the best way to measure the rollout of federal employees? Would you like to see that measured separately in addition to uh, the, uh, the, in the way that you're the get, suggesting the shots get out? Would you like to see someone, maybe OPM, keep track of how quickly these uh, shots are getting into arms, ma'am? Well, the reason I think it would make some sense if they could do it, uh, and I recognize that they're dealing with jurisdictions all over the country because there's no jurisdiction that doesn't have federal employees. But the reason it, it would make sense is that it could tell us when to open the federal government. Uh, if federal employees are all vaccinated, then uh, the sooner that happens, the sooner the federal government itself can open. What are you hearing from your constituents who are federal employees about their willingness or eagerness or maybe a lack of desire to go back to the office uh, in the wake of some kind of progress on the pandemic? Well, actually, I hear more from people not in the federal government. My, my federal employees, and I probably have more federal employees in my own region than anyone else, are anxious to go back to work. But teleworking, which is what I'm doing, uh, and what federal workers are doing has made it possible for the federal government to keep working. So I'm not having this, hearing the same kind of complaints from federal employees that I'm hearing from others, such as those who work in restaurants and, and hotels, for example. And that was the question I wanted to go to next, ma'am, is what are you hearing from those people that are saying, we need people to come back to the office at some level so that the, the economy in the district starts to maybe come back to where it was pre-pandemic? It's the economy that worries us now. The economy doesn't suffer when federal employees are working at home, but the, the economy of the District of Columbia uh, suffers tremendously when our restaurant workers, when, when our workers, because this is uh, next to the federal government, uh, our workers that tend to our uh, amusement places 
are the largest number, those are the people who are really suffering. They can't telework. <laughs> they can't work from home. That's why the progress <clears throat> that the new administration is making on getting people, on getting vaccines to pay people is encouraging. What bothers me is not the administration of the vaccines, but the supply of the vaccines. It looks like those who make the vaccines can't make them fast enough uh, for the need in our country and certainly in our region. We learned at the beginning of the week, ma'am, that uh, the Johnson Johnson vaccine can be distributed now. They're starting to get into the, the uh, supply chain as well. What do you expect to see both for federal employees and for your constituents all over the district who want to be back at work and, and be ready to serve the federal employees that are coming back? Um, what do you expect to see timeline wise? Have you gotten any information yet about what that might look like? No information, but I can tell you that the, a one shot vaccine is going to uh, light years hasten uh, the not only getting back to work or getting back to the office, but getting back, getting rid of this vaccine. Uh, that's really what we've needed. I'm not sure I've ever seen a vaccine where you had to have two doses before. We have about 30 seconds left, ma'am. Um, are you back to the, the prioritization of the shots? Uh, are you satisfied with the way that the jurisdictions are categorizing people that federal employees will get the proper prioritization that you and your colleagues would like to see? Look, I am. You know, in this region, for example, we're categorizing people 65 and over. Now, I don't think a federal employee who's 25 years old uh, should get a shot before an older worker. So I don't think, I think to go to, federal employees are important, but I don't think we should say they are more important than other employees, so they should jump to the front of the line in some way. They live in their own jurisdictions. They're characterized according to how their own jurisdictions believe is important for their jurisdictions. And I think that fellow employees have to go along with everybody else in that way, with other workers in that way. The important thing is what the president has done, which is to say four hours of administrative leave for every shot. Congresswoman Norton, thank you very much for joining me today. It's great to have you back on the program. My pleasure. Coming next, the number one story of the week, a funding blowout that could shake up IT systems in government. Straight ahead on Government Matters, two former federal CIOs on how and where to spend the money. You're watching ABC7. Now, the number one story of the week, the Technology Modernization Fund could get as much as a billion dollars in funding if the Senate's version of stimulus legislation passes. The bill includes cash for the U.S. Digital Service, too. Suzette Kent's a board member at the LSU Foundation and Hancock Whitney. Tony Scott is CEO of the Tony Scott Group. They are both former federal chief information officers. Folks, welcome. Thanks very much for joining me. Suzette, I start with you. Alan Thomas, the former FAST commissioner and former TMF board member, was on the show Thursday night, and he said if this money comes through, the board should think big, the TMF board. How big should the board think if they have a billion dollars to work with, Suzette? 
Francis, first, uh, thanks for having me. And as you said, this is a, an important topic. And the, the board has been thinking about this many times. Um, as Alan, I, I'm sure, shared, there were many times where opportunities for expanded funds were discussed, and this one's exciting. And the opportunity to think big is some of the things that go beyond single agencies, things that could be um, accelerated in a um, much better manner versus a single agency coming with a small, you know, discrete initiative. The board and the agencies have been pondering on this a long time. And I really hope that this is something that it's, it's good for everyone. Everyone wants modernization, cybersecurity, um, and the ability to move much faster against that agenda. And this is such an important vehicle to do that. So the, the sky is a bit the limit and um, we're all gonna stay really positive and hope this moves forward. Tony, is the speed that Suzette alludes to there maybe the biggest opportunity, maybe more so than the actual projects themselves, the opportunity to do, to do a lot of things at once and really hit the gas pedal? Well, I think that's right, Francis. And, you know, there's no lack of urgent issues for agencies to go address. Um, whether you look at it from a cybersecurity perspective or you look at it from a citizen services perspective or you look at it from an opportunity for cost savings uh, over time, uh, there's no lack of uh, urgent issues. So I'm hoping that... Uh, you know, all agencies look at that with uh, the sense of urgency that um, I think this requires and seize the opportunity and, and also prove that this method of, or continue to prove, I should say, that this method of, um, of funding uh, government IT is a, is a great approach uh, to the problem. Tony, this, this existed, this came about when you were the federal CIO, uh, the genesis of this. What do you make of the proposal to make this money more like a grant than a loan? I, you know, frankly, I'm not in favor of that. Um, I think it's important to get uh, strong agency buy-in. And I think it's just a fundamental human principle that you value things that, you know, you pay for or that you put some energy into more than something that's just a out-and-out -out gift. And I think when it's just a, like a grant, there's a tendency to work hard to get the grant and then turn your head away and look to, you know, the next grant that you can get versus making the one that you have successful. Um, and if you have to pay it back over time, I think it has a tendency to um, get more agency leadership buy-in uh, over time. Uh, now, I would favor, you know, maybe varying the length of payback you know, some of the terms of that in some fashion. But, um, you know, the way we crafted that initially was to try to get the maximum amount of senior agency buy-in to, uh, uh, you know, into whatever was being done. And I still think that's a good sort of fundamental principle. Suzette, you nodded your head in agreement with Tony as he talked about potentially changing the letter but not the spirit. Is that what your thought, too? Well... Francis, I, I was nodding because Tony hit on a really important thing. One of the components that I, I believe is 
ha has been transformational about the TMF process is that it requires the IT team and the, the, the CFO and other parts of the agencies to be united in what they're doing, to talk both about the project and the benefits that are, are going to come. And that gets into the repayment schedule. I agree with Tony that there are probably other ways that we can look at that process and make it um, more seamless, especially as we scale. And it, it was um, fantastic, you know, Tony, had the idea and you know helped bring it to life. I had the opportunity, you know, with the team at the time to operationalize that vision. And now it's time for the team and whomever is next to industrialize that process. And many of the agencies, I'll wrap it with with the point of many of the agencies have actually come back and shared that the discipline of engaging, you know, multi-disciplines, the full team around an initiative keeping it at the top of the house, visibility and accountability have been critical success factors and they've even applied it to other projects. And again, that's that's one of the reasons this is such a fantastic vehicle is it forces those dialogues, it creates that accountability and creates transparency while an agency is taking on you know, big complex initiatives. A lot to watch as this moves forward. Suzette Kent, Tony Scott, thank you both very much for joining me. I appreciate your time today. Thanks. Great to talk with you. Take care. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv, and you get a preview of every newscast when you sign up for our daily program guide. You just text GovMatters to the number 58671. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and next Sunday morning at 10.30 on ABC7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.